0: Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. If you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. This summer, we will be having services on Sunday at 830, 945, and 1115 a.m. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. Well, good morning, everyone. Hope you guys are having an absolutely great morning. We certainly are here at uh, Beacon. Let me just open this up here with a little prayer. Father, as we approach uh, a more challenging and delicate topic, uh, I just just pray, Lord, that you would do the work that only you can do, that you would meet us here, uh, that you would... Take each person, Lord, you, you know their story, you know their history, you know what they've been through, what they've done, you know, Father, what they're into, what's happening right now. Lord, I'm praying that you would take the power of your word and the presence of your spirit, and Lord, if people need to be challenged, they would be challenged, if they need to be encouraged, they'd be encouraged, if they need to find your grace and your mercy, Lord, that that, that, that would happen as well. Lord, only, only you can do this life transformative work, and we're we're praying that you would help each person here with humility to participate with you in that great transformative work. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) So sex is one of my favorite things to talk about and teach about (laughs) from the scriptures Because every time I do, I gain some new insight. So this week, for instance, I read somewhere that the Latin word behind our word for sex means to cut, which I had not heard and I hadn't researched actually to find out. But anyway, what what I was reading said that it comes from an ancient creation myth. Aristophanes wrote about how the original people were actually round, and so like a ball, and they had two heads, and they had four arms, and they had four feet. And they were whole in and of themselves as these round people. But the round people, as we do, we rebelled against the gods storming Mount Olympus. And in his rage, Zeus took his sword and hacked them in two. He cut them into two parts. Now, the new split people would forever lament our loss of oneness, that we would always long to be reunited with our other half. Of course, when you think about the essence of this creation myth, we find out then that our frustrated sexuality is a result of the punishment of a fickle and petty group of gods, which helps explain all of the pain that we experience in our sexuality, which, of course, no doubt gave rise to that particular version of the creation myth. But we do experience it this way. Arkansas football coach Bobby Petrino some years ago had an affair with a young woman. Cost him his job, his reputation, and nearly his marriage. Breaking down during an interview with ESPN, Petrino opened up about the fallout from his affair. He said it like this, I have played it over and over in my head a million times. How could I do this? How could this happen? My actions, my behavior, for months it was just wrong. How could I put what we had in jeopardy? This is what I wake up early every morning thinking about and what I lay in bed thinking about. He goes on to explain that the hardest moment in this whole unraveling came when he had to sit down with his wife, Becky, and explain his infidelity. He said, the look in her eyes, the anger, the look of... How could you possibly do this to me? Then he needed to go and tell his four children what he had done. Most everyone has serious regrets when it comes to their sexuality. Maybe it's sexting, or you feel like you'd gone too far, or it's past indiscretion, it's an addiction to pornography. Maybe you're using sex to keep that relationship that you know you shouldn't, but you really can't help yourself. Maybe you violated someone's trust, or you ruined a friendship. What happened? I mean, that's not the what, that's not we were promised. We were promised sexual liberation and empowerment. Where is it? Because that's not how most of us feel. None of us who have bought into the false promise feels truly liberated or empowered Many of us feel damaged and bewildered, because that's the power of sex gone wrong. By the way, to our guests this morning, welcome. (laughs) Uh, I'm really glad you're here. I'm glad this was the day you chose as your first Sunday. You, uh, maybe... Um, you know, you, you may never come back, or perhaps you'll certainly come back. It sort of depends on who, what, what you're like. But if you, if you really don't want to come back, just give us another shot next week. We'll talk about something fluffier, love and something and all that. Just give us a, another shot as we kind of get into this here. Our sexuality is one of the most significant areas where following Jesus can have a profoundly beautiful impact on your life. Historically, the beautiful sexual ethic of Christians changed the ancient world in drastic ways. Rodney Stark, he's a sociologist, not a Christian, by the way. He points to evidence that the Christian sexual ethic that w- had been picked up uh, from a pure, uh, Judaism but had been reignited in the teachings of Christ and in his, his new way of applying these things to our lives He says that those early Christians, because of the decisions they made, saved the lives of countless children, significantly raised the status of women, changed the power dynamic between men and women for the better, and made for happier marriages and a stronger culture. It made the world a more beautiful place. And it can do the same thing in your life today. So let's open in a Bible to Matthew chapter 5 verse 27. Matthew chapter 5 verse 27, still in the Sermon on the Mount like we were last week. I can't give you all the background on the Sermon on the Mount that uh, I gave you last week. If you want to hear some of that, just pick up the message online. But the part that I wanted to kind of highlight today starts off where he says, "You have heard it said, But I tell you, and he's going to say this six different times in the Sermon on the Mount. And for for this morning, the part of that that I think is most significant for us is when he says that you've heard it said, but I tell you, there there is a power and an authority in the claims that Jesus makes. He's actually telling us here and many other places that he knows a better way to live, It's not what you've heard. It's not how you've interpreted things. But he is going to introduce you to a better way. And he rests that upon his own authority, which we find out later is a divine authority. So he can tell us what it is that is the better way. And it stems from his understanding of a biblical Christian ethic which is really carried over from the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, to the very end of the Bible in the Revelation. In the book of Genesis, in chapters 1 and 2, we see that God knit these two together and he made them perfectly suitable sexually for each other so that together they would represent the oneness of humanity and that that oneness would be carried over into our spirituality and God would pick up that theme time and again. In fact, then you go through the Proverbs and all the the wisdom literature constantly reminds us how fantastic and beautiful sex ought to be in the Song of Solomon. It is graphic in its description of human sexuality. Even in the New Testament, some people who get a bad rap like the Apostle Paul, even Paul will continually point to the benefits and the beauty and the joy of sex. One of the, the most compelling examples, comes from the metaphors that are used to describe our relationship with God. So he says to us that you are the bride of Christ. That's one of the names that we're given as Christians. Why does he choose that metaphor? You see, there's something about our relationship and the oneness that is formed when we're joined with our husband, Christ, that he wanted to highlight. In fact, he gets explicit about it later in this curious phrase. He says that we will be At the end of time, we will enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a kind of an odd phrase, but what does it mean? It means your reception after your vows and your honeymoon. That's what the marriage supper of the Lamb was. It's when the wedding would have been consummated. So in a sense, he is describing the joy of heaven and being reunited with God as an orgasmic heavenly experience. Now, just think that through for a moment. Why, why in the world would God, he, 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 set to try, he set out to try to explain to us in language we can understand what it was like to be joined with him and to experience heaven and the new, heaven, the new earth. And he said, well, what's the only experience that humans have that can come close to it? Sex. That's actually, and it actually helps explain why he gave it to us to give us a concrete physical experience that starts to hint at the joy and the delight that is ours in him. And this is why the prudish view of sex can't be the right way to go. You know, right? You know that view that sex is dirty, sex is bad. No, God loves sex. There should be absolutely no Christian prudes Shouldn't exist for us. Yet he points out that sin leads us toward pain and heartache. That's what happens with sexual sin. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Ow. That's a tough pill to swallow. So let's start with adultery. Adultery here represents all types of sexual sin. So when the Hebrew Bible first gives this commandment, it's one of the 10 commandments, he, it's just succinctly listed, don't commit adultery. But then later on throughout the rest of those books, In chapter after chapter, they're explaining the application of the Ten Commandments. And this goes on through various laws, but it also goes on through the narrative, both positive and negative examples. And so what you later find out is that the Ten Commandments were only a summary of the way we ought to live. In fact, Jesus is is revisiting some of those things here in the Sermon on the Mount. But he's extending them, and he's saying, let me tell you what this was really about. So it's not simply about adultery, but about sexual sin in its entirety. This includes any sex outside of marriage, and in fact, some sex inside of marriage. It's young people who are hooking up and swiping right, it's widowers who are sleeping together without marriage, it's serial monogamy, it's open marriages, it's swapping or incest or homosexuality or worse. And I, I understand, I know that this is countercultural and controversial today, and I'm not trying to offend or anything, and I'm not passing judgment. I'm not like, you know, I'm I'm trying here. For followers of Christ, who actually want to follow the wisdom and the brilliance of Jesus and the scriptures, we have got to come to grips with this more restrictive and yet holistic view of sex. Now, because that wasn't... Challenging enough for us, he amps it up with this lust comment in verse 28. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. By the way, that goes for men and women. He's one example, but this applies equally to women who are lusting as well. Which means, of course, well, I guess we're all screwed um, because the the U.S. is the largest producer and exporter of pornography. We host more sexually deviant websites. We create more hypersexualized entertainment, TV, movies, and music than any other culture the world has ever known. One author, he put it like this, no period of history has been more drenched with sex than ours. We are over-informed about some aspects of its physiology and yet know little of its profound mystery." This scholar Lloyd Ogilvy he wrote that in 1969. I wonder what he would say about the culture today. Cuz our culture today we believe that lust is just fine. In fact, it's probably good. I mean, it can help kickstart a marriage, right? Something that's a little dreary and t- you got it. And lust is a good thing. That's what they'll have us believe. In fact, if you disagree with that, you will be branded a backward, unenlightened prude, and nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, hasn't this way of living been tried and found wanting already? Is there really an observer of society who feels like our obsessive sexual lusts are creating a better culture? Really? Is there anyone who could really look out onto the landscape of America and say, oh yeah, we are definitely heading in the right direction with all of this. I mean, the entirety of the Me Too movement is fighting against this secular view of lust. Human trafficking is still rampant. Girls in junior high and younger are being sold a lie that is crushing and coarsening their souls. More and more people, more and more men, are opting out of healthy reality-based relationships. Counselors continually tell us about the disintegration of oneness that pornography is causing in both men and women. What we have today is a culture that says that you can take one part of a person and you can extract it out of them. That one part that makes you feel good and you don't have to honor them as a whole person. Just grab that little part and make yourself feel good. This is the height of self-centeredness. Yeah, but it makes us feel good. And whether that's through casual sex or exploitive TV and movies, we want sex without responsibility. We want sex without marriage. Lust thinks first and foremost of its own desires with little thought to the values and the needs of another person. And Jesus comes on the scene and he says, listen, no person is created to be the object of, of another's selfish sexual pleasure. People aren't playthings. They were meant to have more honor and more dignity than that. And so the answer can't be with the pagan view of sex and it isn't with the prudish view of sex. There has to be something better. And Jesus says, listen, lust is not the way. It has a voracious appetite. One of my favorite quotes comes from an author, Frederick Beekner. He says, "'Lust is the ape that gibbers in our loins. Tame him as we will by day. He rages all the wilder in our dreams by night. Just when we think we're safe from him, he raises up his ugly head and smirks. And there's no river in the world flows cold and strong enough to strike him down.'" Almighty God, why dost thou deck men with such a loathsome toy? It so well captures the power of lust. It's like a gateway drug. You get in and all of a sudden you begin to spiral into ever deeper and darker sexual sin. And anyone who has truly wrestled with the addictive power of lust knows exactly what he is talking about. You know, I'm not, I, I'm not talking about that occasional glance at, you know, a, a beautiful woman or, you know, we're talking about what comes after that glance. I'm not even talking about that dissatisfied longing that a woman might feel when she's, you know, watching a, a romantic movie and she kind of sees her husband sitting there and she's like, Meh. you know, it's like, I'm not, I'm not talking about that, those, those fleeting momentary things. I'm talking about what happens after that. I'm talking about raw and powerful and deceitful lust that promises so much carnal delight and yet delivers shame and misery. To this day, I still carry personally the scars and the struggles of my past. And I know many of you who do. We've talked about it many a times in many different places with many different folks. It is still impacting my present and it promises to have a negative impact on my future. If only we could help young people begin to understand the cost of what it is they're doing now. This is why Jesus warns us in the strongest possible way to run from lust and sexual sin. look what he says in verse 29. He says, If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Obviously, Jesus isn't really calling us to maim ourselves, right? And there's a simple way we know this to be true. Well, I mean, we know it's because it's Jesus. He doesn't do stuff like that. But we also know it because Jesus isn't an idiot, And he knows that you can lust just fine with one eye. (laughs) There's actually, Actually, you can close your eyes all together and lust just fine. So what's the point he's trying to make? He's telling us that this is so dangerous that we've got to do whatever it takes. That's why he starts throwing in the idea of hell here. He's saying... That lust and sexual sin, it seeks to burn you to the ground. I mean, that's what Coach Petrino was saying. Couldn't even understand how it had happened. And rarely will you find something in human experience that we are so willing to let destroy us as sexual sin. How many times have you heard a story and you just went, What happened? Because we are willing to risk. Everything. We are willing to burn our families to the ground. We are willing to scorch our souls. We're willing to dehumanize our sexual conquests. All for just a little bit of physical delight. Just that little bit of dopamine hit. Which, by the way, returns less and less till it gets more and more. It's voracious. Because the stakes are so high, and because sexual sin is so dangerous, because the heartache is so severe, we simply can't mess around with lust or other sexual sin. The scriptures tell us time and again, Apostle Paul, Colossians chapter 3, he says, put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, or Ephesians 5, 3. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Put it to death. Let there not even be a hint among you. Gouge it out and cut it off. That's the biblical call for the follower of Christ in dealing with sexual sin. We need to avoid it at all costs, we can't take it lightly. That's what we often do nowadays. We're like, oh, it's just, you know, I got this thing. It's not a big deal. I'm working it through. Maybe we'll talk about getting a little help, maybe Medicaid. Maybe I'll talk to someone about it for a little bit. Jesus is telling us, listen, that sin, it needs to be condemned and repented of. You know, we've been told nowadays that you just need to kind of go with your desires, Whatever your inclination is, whatever, you know, your identity is, just go into that. Move into that, man. You can't. If you avoid that, if you, don't, if you don't yield to it, you're going to cause psychological damage. And Jesus is coming on this scene and he's saying, of course sin causes psychological damage. We've been telling you that for millennia. Sexual sin wraps itself up around your heart. It's tentacles they, they damage the brain. They squeeze your spiritual vitality. Yes, it's damaging. And Jesus says that we are still active and passive participants in that sin. And what needs to happen is that we need to take it seriously and we need to deal with it the way that Jesus tells us. We need to repent and turn to him. Turn away from it. So what is the sex that makes a difference in the Christian's life? Well, it starts with a reminder that sex is awesome. We've got to start there. Aristophanes got it all wrong. Our sexuality isn't about, being, about a punishment. You know, that's a horrible way to think about it. We're not being punished in it. It was a gift from a God who desperately loves us and knows how we were created and knows what our needs are and he knows how we will thrive as individuals and as couples and as families and as society and he's got this beautiful picture laid out in front of us. Our sexuality isn't a curse, it's an incredible gift from our gracious God. The God of the Bible, he loves sex and he wants it to be a beautiful and healing and holistic part of our lives. He is pro-sex. And for us to experience that, we've got to put Jesus at the center of our affections. We have to recognize that he is actually the lover of our soul and that what we do here in the physical realm all points and leads into this great these great truths of the spiritual realm. But to do that, we've got to start first with Jesus and we've got to put him at the center of our affections. And we need to make certain that we can trust him to know what is best. Because there are going to be lots of times where we're going to want to do something. We have to convince ourselves and tell ourselves and go back to the reality that actually Jesus knows better than you. And he wants what's best for you. His restrictions are for your good. Your best experience of sexuality is going to be through your holistic obedience to Christ. Now, a couple of practical points as to how you might gouge out your eyes nowadays. Because we've got to figure out some practical things that we can actually do with. Well, when you're dealing with lust, I want to encourage you to start by just trying to avoid the danger. A whole lot of, of pain will be avoided and misery will be avoided if we just avoid the danger. And that means making a covenant with our eyes, right? Like Job did. He says, I've made a covenant with my eyes so that he might not lust after a woman. And for some of us here, it means we need to avoid the situations and the people that inflame our lusts. We need to keep clear of them. And if you need a little help, you can get some accountability people. There are filters you can install on your computers and things that will send, you know, your, your browsing history to a trusted friend who can kind of help keep you accountable, all that kind of stuff. But, but the point of it is more so to actually start to reflect on the harm that could be caused and on the joy that Christ holds out for our obedience We've got to practice avoiding the danger by averting our eyes. And this is just a discipline. I've I've talked to how many countless Christian men over the years who've just said, I had to learn to avert my eyes. I need to not look. Not take the second glance. Not decide to steal a little bit from you so that I can get a little bit of delight in me. To not manipulate others in that way. You know, students here, young people, I understand how difficult this is because you guys are growing up in a world that none of us did. You're growing up and you're, you're exposed to things and you are seeing things that, that are just beyond anything that we had been exposed to. And so you are, you're dealing with a very significant assault against your soul. You need help. You need to talk to someone. You want to you talk it out. Find someone that you can trust. Find someone who has a, a biblical, a Christian worldview who can help you process these things and give you the encouragement and pray for you and support you behind the scenes to make this something, a battle that, that won't wipe you out and cause a lifetime of regret. And parents, man, you guys got to get a grip. You know, we've got to get our act together because we've got to be able to offer our kids a God-centered, biblical worldview, the goodness of God and of sex, and the risks of disobeying him in this. Because your kids, they are seeing things and they are doing things that you may not want to admit and you may be embarrassed by, you may have a hard time talking about it, but I've got to tell you, they need you. Then we need to practice capturing every thought. Now, you know, this is a big one because, you know, you talk to folks who are dealing with uh, with this and they go, listen, the problem is it's all in my head. Like it's it just pops into my head. What am I supposed to do? How, you know, and I'm trying to keep them out of my head. Now, if you've already avoided the danger, okay? So I'm not saying you're, you can't put yourself in those places. You can't feed yourself that stuff. If you do that, you're bad. That's on you. Got You got to change all that. But... If, if let's say you're not, you're just walking down the street and all of a sudden these thoughts are jumping in, right? This is what happens. And so you could spend a whole lot of energy trying to keep those thoughts out. Just good luck. You know, it's like, it's nearly impossible not to think about the purple elephant, right? Like, just don't think about it. Don't put it in your head. Don't picture it. But like there, it's there. And now you can't get it out of your head. But like, this is what happens. So It it isn't so much trying to keep it out, right? I think I told you this. Luther, he said, you know, you can't keep the bird from flying over your head, but you can keep it from building a nest on your head. That's what we're talking about here. It flies over. It jumps into your head. Now what do you do with it? Don't beat yourself up for the thought that jumps into your head. That's there. There's nothing you're going to be able to do. It jumped in. Now what? What you do now is you capture it. You have to grab it. You have to recognize it for what it is. You need to call it what it is. You need to align your heart with the heart of God on this. And then you need to repent of it. You need to say, wow, this is not who I want to be. These are not the things I want to think about. And then you need to bring it back to the foot of the cross. And you need to say, listen, I, Lord, this isn't what I want. I repent of this thought. This thing that jumped in is not what I want. Purify my mind. Make this something that works for me. I don't, want to, I don't want to be this man. I don't want to be this woman anymore, please. So you capture that thought you repent of that thought, and then you pray. You pray for the person that you were lusting after. Why? Because you're going to pray God's thoughts after them. You're going to pray that they're treated with respect and with dignity as a child of God. You're going to pray that the image of God, the Imago Dei, becomes just beautiful in them. You're going to switch the narrative from objectifying to honoring and giving dignity. And you're gonna do that every single time. Some of you are like, all right, I'll make that a discipline. I'll do it like every couple of weeks. No, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. You do it in the moment. Some of you are like, really, every time? Like I would be doing that all day. Yes, that's the point. You would be praying without ceasing, which is a great spiritual discipline. And If you need more help after that, you might want to think about confession to another person, accountability, someone who can hold you to the vows and the commitments that you've made. And I can't tell you how many times I have had to bring my guilt and my shame back to the foot of the cross, how many times I've had to bring another person alongside to help me in my journey. Now, if you're already in sexual sin right now, this is beyond just lust and the battle that goes on inside of us. But if you're already in sexual sin, it's that relationship that you're in that you know it's not right. It's those activities that you're participating in. It's the stuff you're watching. I got to tell you, you can't expect God's blessing while those things are going on. You just can't. You're in a relationship that isn't God honoring. Don't expect God to honor that relationship. He won't. He can't. He'd actually be rewarding you for doing the very things he knows are damaging your soul and hurting the soul of another person he loves. God wants to forgive us. He wants to restore us. But we do it through an act of repentance, turning away from the sin and turning toward the cross. That's how we do it. We need to take all of that guilt and all of that shame, and we need to bring it back to Jesus. He's the one who said, listen, you are my beautiful bride, spotless, pure, really, because I don't feel that way. This is where we trust in Christ. And he says, no, but you are, because I took your guilt to the cross. I took your shame to the cross. I'm offering you forgiveness now. It's yours for the taking. The call of Christian to Christian sexuality is radically different from the world. We offer a significant departure from the sexual tyranny and false freedom that the world seduces us with. I'm going to ask the band to come up. They're going to lead us in a song as we prepare our hearts to go to the Lord's table. And as they do, I just want to offer a prayer for us. Would you stand as I pray? Father, what we're asking for here is nothing short of having our lives transformed by the power of the Spirit through repentance and through the gift of salvation that comes. Lord, we want to we leave our guilt and our shame behind. We want to turn away from sin and we want your, your fullness of life to be made real. Lord, you know where each person's at. You know the hurts that they've experienced and you know the things that they've done. You know the fears that they have. Even here now, this morning, they're, they're working through these things, Lord, and I'm praying that you would meet each person exactly where they need it. If they need to be challenged to turn away from their sin, Lord, do that with them here. Make today the day they repented. Lord, if they need to be encouraged and find forgiveness for the shame and for the guilt that we carry, Lord, let that be the gift you offer them today. May they embrace it. May they take it. That's what we want, Father. Let us do some real work. Meet us here. Amen.